Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought, continuing with Fire on the Horizon. This week's chapter is the nature of being in the world. Last time we talked about ways of being in the world, and so now we're going to talk about, I guess, the nature of that. So it's, again, continuing this meditation on what the story of Adam and Eve means, spurred on by the temple endowment and, you know, how we kind of put ourselves in the place of Adam and Eve. And so continuing with that, I'll just start with this quote. You say, we are all tempted to hide ourselves from accountability for our freedom. We are all tempted to try to use our life circumstances to create a story of ourselves that absolves us from accountability for our choices. And this is hearkening back, I guess, to the part in the Adam and Eve story where after they have eaten the fruit, Satan tells them, oh no, look, you've sinned, go hide yourselves. And they choose to go and hide themselves or try to cover it up. And then when God asks Adam what happened, he's like, uh, well, the woman made me do it, basically, which, you know, may be more or less true in the story. But like you say, it's it's tempting to always give our accountability away and say that it was some other thing created our choices. And so is that kind of what we're talking about today? Yeah. Let me do two observations. First, the woman clearly did not make him do it. She didn't even have the power to make him do it. He was stronger than her which is an insight into why Eve is going first. If it had been Adam who was trying to persuade Eve, the notion of a physical threat coercing her to, to do something would have always been present. But the fact that it's Eve who goes first, and now she's persuading Adam, shows that it's Adam's choice. They're choosing of their own free will. And the second observation is the title, The Nature of Being in the World. What we're focusing on here is what the scriptures call the natural man. The term nature comes from the Greek word physis. Our word physics comes from that word, and it means the way the natural world operates with its laws and how things just are in the natural world. And so we're talking about the natural causal order of things and how we account for things. That's just the way that that it appears in, in its use in the New Testament. And so when we're talking about the way that we are in the world, we're placed in a world where we have... And we've already discussed this, basically two ways of being. We can either be an act, a cause ourselves, where we choose to be in the world consciously and we choose how we will be, or we react and we are acted upon and merely become the effect of prior causes. And so we're looking at where we fit ourselves into the causal order. And in this meditation, what we're going to be doing is dovetailing this with Buber's distinction between an it and a thou where the it lives in the world of feces, the it lives in a causal world, where the it is merely caused to be what it is by prior causes instead of being a thou. A thou is a creative first actor, in a sense, a person who, instead of having senses of the world and having the world act upon us to know it, we interact with the world, where the world reveals itself to us. And so we're living in a world here and now instead of uh, in the past, And so whenever I sense something with my senses, 
what I'm sensing is already in the past because it takes time for the information. So if I touch something, it takes time for the information to travel from my fingertips to my brain where I can have some idea of what it is. If I see it, it takes time for the photons to move to my eye and for my retina to convert that into electrochemical energy. And then the optic nerve carries it after crossing from the right lobe and the left lobe carries it to my visual cortex where I then have a sense of it, but it's always in the past. I can't affect it because by the time I've sensed something, it's already given. So when I'm talking about meeting another person in the sense of meeting a thou, I use the word encounter instead of the way that we usually think of it, of having a sensation of that person. If I'm merely sensing that person, then I'm treating that person as a thing. And we'll get into this a little bit more, but what I'm doing is I use my a priori categories to say, oh, that person's like this other person. It reminds me of this person. And I have this way of categorizing and already judging a person before ever even really knowing the person. And my senses are the effect of the person merely acting upon my senses. And that person is then in the past as a causal given that can't really be a living thing because it is simply given as something that is way past anything that I could affect. It's already gone. If I encounter a person, and this is a a term of art for Martin Buber and his philosophy, if I encounter a person, then I have a sympathetic encounter or contact with another person where not only do I enter into a relationship with this person, but it's a living dynamic encounter where that person is allowed to reveal him or herself to me without my first imposing upon that person what is given in me. And so instead of placing this person in my categories and judging and so forth, This person now becomes a revelation to me because I'm learning about this person as that person is revealing who he or she actually is instead of the way that I've judged it to be. And so this is a fundamental divide in the way that we are with people. And it's given, I mean, if we become unconscious, we're already treating people as an it. And in doing so, we make ourselves a mere thing, a mere object in it, because we also are merely the result of the causal order, the effect of what has gone before. And we do this over and over again. We do it also in our relationships. We'll get into that a little bit more. But the bottom line is I wanted to talk about this word physis and how we place ourselves in nature and how being a part of nature, when we talk about the natural man, we're talking about the kind of being that simply reacts, not a godlike creator who makes choices, but a person who has no choice because of the overwhelming deterministic causal order that went beforehand that we can't change and that we're the mere effect of that causal order. We're not really making choices. All of our choices are determined to be what they are by what went on well before we ever made a choice and even well before we were born. All right. You go on and explain that Immanuel Kant held the idea that for a person to be morally responsible, they must be able to do other than they in fact do for ought implies can, meaning if you ought to do something morally, then you can do it. Otherwise, you know, it's impossible for you to ought to be able to do it. So you say, if I blame a person for doing an act, such as someone who would rob a 7-Eleven, then that implies that that person could have refrained from doing so and should have done something other than what he or she did. So I get that. We've used that example a lot regarding our talks about free will during the first volume. But back to what you were kind of talking about before with, let's say, just judging a person. The categorizing and placing people according to the way we're judging them that's similar to people we've interacted with in the past or something, 
that happens on an unconscious level that's like not controllable by us necessarily at all. So, I mean, I don't know if you'd argue with that, but I'd say we can't choose not to have that enter our minds, but I guess the choosing then occurs afterwards if we don't just stop with that. Maybe we should then keep going and say, okay, well, that came up. Well, where did that come from? That's just my subconscious that I don't really necessarily have control over. But now I can consciously choose to see them as a child of God or a thou, as Buber puts it. Is that kind of how you see that? Or do you think we can control the subconscious? Yeah, what you're using a lot of loaded terms. You're using a Freudian term of a subconscious, which I would need to unpack. I think it's fraught with difficulties. So the answer is yes, we can encounter people in such a way that we don't judge them. If you truly love a person, you don't judge them, you let them be a new person who reveals themselves to you, and you see there in their dynamic reality is an ongoing, unfinished business type of uh, not-yet-done person. I mean, if you say, oh, I see that person, he looks like my uncle, maybe that's the case, but I see a guy with a goatee and immediately think, oh, there's a child molester, because child molesters have goatees, that guy has a goatee, therefore a child molester. Instead of doing that, we consciously know that that's not the case. I would argue there's a way of being in the world, and most people know this. There's a kind of heart-to-heart sympathetic knowledge that we have with others. We put it in this kind of vernacular. I, I just had a connection. I just had a sense about that person. I had a gut feeling. These kind of things where a person just reaches us in a way that others don't, they make a contact with us because we see something in them that we haven't imposed on them. And we have an insight into what they've revealed to us about this person in particular. It happens in the interaction with another person. And so there is this kind of being in the world. It's a heightened state of consciousness where, frankly, we turn off our consciousness. We don't lead with our head. It's not a matter of thinking things before we get there, putting things into categories of thought. It's a matter of simply knowing. And remember the way I've argued that knowing is a matter of the heart that we talked about knowing as being. And so it's this deeper level of knowing a person where we're not simply being head cases, if you will. This is hard to discuss without just unpacking it all, cause, you know. but the whole point of the volume is to put it into a vernacular that isn't a bunch of uh, philosophical jargon so that people can understand it. And so I would disagree that we are at the mercy of our prior judgments of people, and we always, when we first encounter a person, just somehow peg them to be something that they're not. Now, we may often do that, but that would be a revelation to us about our way of being in the world. Okay. I just meant there are some things going on that you're not necessarily totally actively controlling. And like you said, it might just be going to sleep where it's like, you see someone and like you get that feeling, but like you didn't go through and be like, oh, he has a goatee, therefore he reminds me of this one guy that I saw in the news. It's just that happens without you really understanding why you feel that way about that person sometimes. But then I'm just saying, whatever that feeling is, you can then override it and be like, okay, I'm not sure where that's coming from, but I can discern between that and the reality that I don't know this person and... If I truly love other people, I can encounter them and be open to whatever they're going to be. Well, that's why, at least in Buber's thought, what we're talking about is kind of a dialogue. The I-thou relationship is put in the metaphor of a dialogue where we are speaking with each other. And the question is, with which voice will we speak with? Will it be the voice of the person as an object, or will it be with a voice where it's neither I nor thou, you know, it's not you or me, it's in the relationship. 
I pointed this out before, it's important to recognize that the emphasis in the I-thou relationship is not on the I or on the thou, but in the hyphen that's in between them. And so it's the relationship that is at issue, not our subjectivity and not the objectivity of the person. Subjectivity and objectivity are ways of being that belong to the it world. The encounter that includes I and thou as one unit in the encounter is living in the sacred world where persons are not treated as objects, but as intrinsically valuable sacred realities in and of themselves. Okay. Let's go into these two examples, and then I have a question about a broader application of that. So you have two examples of people that are held to this, What I guess just they're reacting with the natural man or the natural way that if you're being unconscious, you would react. And especially in the first one, I don't think we can necessarily fault or blame this person for feeling that way. They're, they're probably justified to some degree, but in the end, it's not really helping them. So go ahead and tell, I, mean, I could tell it, but you probably know better since you wrote the story about a young girl who was molested by her grandfather. Actually, not a young girl. Okay, a girl that was young at one point. Yeah, she was young. When she was a young girl, her grandfather sexually molested her. I know her well. I've had several conversations with her, and it seems like every conversation I have with her ultimately turns into one of two things about how rotten life is or how she's a victim. And, I mean, what she's doing in being molested, every person that she encounters becomes a re-encounter with her grandfather. And, you know, she has a way of being in the world of really not being able to be with other people. Her personality is fragmented. She has numerous psychological issues, you know, as one would expect. The whole point isn't to blame anybody. It's just to observe that what's happening here is that she's being controlled still by her grandfather from the past. That in her hatred for her grandfather, and in really she's, I hate to use the term man-hater, but in just terms of common speech, I'm going to use that term. She's never been able to have any kind of real relationship with a man or with a woman, for that matter. But when she speaks about man, there's, there's a special venom in her voice. I suspect that's because, and she's actually told me this, so it's beyond my suspicion, all men kind of remind her of her grandfather. They're all a bunch of worthless degenerates looking for something beyond merely being with her. And so these kind of self-defeating behaviors, the, the fragmentation of her personality, and the inability to live in the here and now, because she's still, in, in every moment, still living out the pain of her past. Now, I use this because it is a very sympathetic type of a, an example. Nobody's going to blame her. We all could understand why it is that she's having these difficulties. This is a particularly heinous crime, and nobody wants to excuse her grandfather. But we also all know people who have had these kinds of experiences in their lives, and they've been able to let go. When we forgive another person, the person that is really healing isn't the person we forgive, it's ourselves that we heal. And in letting go, we make it so that that person who hurt us in the past doesn't continue to hurt us here and now. Her grandfather, even though he was dead, is still controlling her from the past, and she's given her power to her grandfather to control her, who just insanely is the last person on earth she would ever want to give power over her life to. And so what we're talking about is this kind of insanity. The person who lives as a natural man, the person who lives in the it world is a person who lives in the past and is totally controlled by the past. So, look, we were all raised by parents and we all have issues and we all blame our parents for the issues that we have because they screwed us up. And when we have children, we can recognize that we're screwing them up too. Nobody came with a manual. 
And we can blame our parents and we can blame the others in our lives and we can tell our victim stories. Or we can let go of the past, recognize that we're accountable here and now. Now, she's not accountable for what her grandfather did to her. She was a little girl. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But she doesn't have to continue to be his victim. We can choose not to be victims of our past. And I know that, you know, for some people, they're just, their heads are exploding and saying, that's impossible, you know, with reverberations of Luke Skywalker telling his own father that that's impossible, which is put into the movie for that very reason, by the way. It's impossible that we overcome our past, but it is possible. That's what repentance is about. It's what the atonement is about. It's what forgiveness is about. And it's what the I-Thou relation is about. When we are with another person and we're encountering the person in an I-Thou relation, we're not holding them in their past. And as a result, we're not holding ourselves in the past either. We're here in the dynamic reality of a living present with that person here now. So there's this movie that I recently saw um, called I Can Only Imagine. And it's about the story of the author of the song in the singing group Mercy Me. And he's had just an absolutely horrendous childhood of physical abuse with his father. And the story is the story of redemption, both of himself and of his father, after just being totally unable to move on because of his hatred of his father and just the horrendous things that he's experienced. He goes back. And he discovers that his own singing led his father to listen to some Christian preachers. And his father listened, and then he started to read the Bible, and he changed. The son, however, wasn't willing to let him change. And so, you know, he's continuing to hold him in his past, and then he learns that his father has cancer. And so he's got to stay with his father to care for him, and he discovers in this encounter that his father truly is a new person. And he develops a relationship with his father. And the redemption of his father comes in the healing of their relationship. And so he sees the miracle that God could work that he didn't believe that God could do with his father. And it's just, it's a powerful story of forgiveness and the healing that can occur when we allow a person to dialogue with us in the here and now about who they really are and who they choose to be. And taking accountability for our own judgmentalness and the kinds of things that we've done to create the world that we live in for ourselves. And so, you know, I I put that out there as kind of an example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And we've all seen people who have overcome these horrendous kind of circumstances. We may see them as heroic. We may see them as miracles. We may see them as the exception to the rule. But the reality is, is we have this basic power to forgive. It's a power that we just have in and of ourselves. This power to forgive is a divine power, and it's the power to not live in the past and to allow a person to reveal him or herself to us here and now, to not hold them in their past. And in so doing, we're releasing ourselves because we've held our own selves in in a past, the past that they created and we're their victim. And so this important fact about to not be a natural man is to not be a part of the causal history of nature. It's to not be simply the result of prior causes. It's not to simply be a cause of others and place them where they are in our world for us by creating where they have to be. It's removing ourselves from this causal order, the world of nature, and becoming conscious to the extent that we choose and we become creators by becoming persons who act for ourselves rather than merely being acted upon. Now, I can also illustrate it with a second story. This happened to me. I wish it didn't keep happening to me, but. It happened to me several years ago. I hate to tell you how many times it's happened to me and continues to happen. So I'll be in traffic 
I was driving home one particular day, and this jerk just pulled out right in front of me, nearly hit me, just being reckless. And I just lost it. I was so angry because they put my life in danger. The guy was on his phone, and he just not paying attention. And I was really upset. I started to yell. I actually honked my horn. I was going to roll down the window and tell him what I thought about him. And then I caught myself, and I thought, you know, how many times have I done that? How many times have I been unconscious and not driven as carefully as I would like? And I began to realize, you know, this guy's probably like me. He's probably a father who goes to work every day and was just driving home, probably talking with his wife or children on the telephone. And I began to have compassion and empathy for this jerk. And all of a sudden, he was not in the category of being a jerk anymore. He was in the category of being a real person like me. And so instead of yelling and stuff, I rolled down my window and he rolled down his window and I said, please forgive me. I was going to be angry at you, but instead I've decided to appreciate the fact that there was a miracle that happened and we didn't have an accident and I just wish you the best. He looked at me, <laughs> you know, it was a crazy message for him, but for me it was a miracle because I had chosen to pull myself out of being an it, being merely the cause of this jerk and turning myself into a creator and being a person instead of who was increasing the amount of jerkiness in the world of increasing kindness. I wish I could do that more. It doesn't happen every day with me, but at least that time it did. And I work on that. I work on kindness instead of being a jerk myself. Notice how the jerk created a jerk out of me. And that's how it goes. If we live in the world of cause and effect, then whatever we do, we create. In an it, it relationship, we're both objects. The minute we enter that world, everybody becomes an object for us, but we also create of ourselves an object. We create of ourselves a thing that is merely acted upon and no longer a person who is a holy thou. And so it's important to understand, and this is part and parcel of Buber's I-thou relationship um, philosophy, to live as a thou is to be a thou in a relationship. To live in the it world is for everything in the world to be a mere object. Here's a part of the secret. When we enter the world of sacred encounter, it's not merely people who are sacred. Everything that we encounter is sacred. The entire world is sacred. It could even speak to us. And so the minute that we are no longer merely at the mercy of everything that went before us, we then can encounter this world and live here and now in the magic of living reality. Remember the choices that Lehi says we have in Second Nephi, things that act and things that are acted upon, and the choice we have is a choice between life and death. <laughs> Well, the reason for that is that only things that are alive live in the here and now. All dead things are in the past. Anything that's in the past can't be changed. It's dead to us. It doesn't have any reality other than what it was. The reality is that living things live in the here and now, and, and we have our being move in the here and now. So living now, the power of now, is extremely important. And it's extremely important if we are going to really be a Christian, one who has been released from being a natural man, being released from the irredeemable effects of the prior causal order, and make of ourselves divine creators in the world who choose and act for ourselves. I was listening to some podcasts, and they were talking about how whenever there's like a war or something with another nation, the nations have to kind of view each other as objects. They have to dehumanize them almost. You know, that's where like a lot of racial slurs came from in like World War II and stuff like that. You know, because once you're fighting with someone, you can't see them as a thou. You can't see them as a person. You have to see them as this object that is just not even human, you know, not even person that's 
needs to be regarded as worthy of living. And so that's how you can kill them. Yeah. That's why they're Japs and Krauts and, you know, all of that. So you're right. We have to do that because, you you know, you're in a foxhole and the guy across from you is in a foxhole and you're shooting each other. If you see that person as a real person, you're probably going to stop shooting and you just can't have that. I don't know. I just thought that that's, you know, that's kind of a, one of the main problems in the world in general, just because, well, and this is kind of to my question I said I was going to ask. So it's not easy, but it's obviously easier to make that transition from an it to thou, an I-thou relationship when you can actually have an encounter with someone. A lot of the problem where I'd say, you know, we have modernly, or especially like right now is in the United States specifically too, is there's a lot of this us versus them mentality. I mean, like, this is our camp, this is how our camp thinks, and everyone that doesn't think like this is not part of us, and they are objects, they are its. We know how to categorize them for right-wing people when they hear someone has some liberal ideas, like, oh, I know exactly who you are because I know, you know, based on the people I've met in the past, or same on the other side, liberal meets someone that's rebelling, oh, I know, you're just some hillbilly that wants to shoot stuff. So it's like, those are caricatures of people, again, the same way that we caricature people in war. And so it's like, if we actually encounter people and have conversations with them, usually their ideas are a little more nuanced. And, you know, in the end, we still not may agree with them, but we can at least have respectful conversation with people. And, you know, if we're going to discuss ideas that are kind of heated and there's different opinions on, we can at least listen to each other. No, you're absolutely right. The it world lives in the world of tribalism. The bigger problem is social media, and that's because it is so easy to see people as a mere thing, a mere object. All you are on Facebook is a post. You're not a real person. I mean, keep in mind that 90% of human communication is nonverbal, and yet all you can get is not merely the, the verbal part. What you get is merely the written expression, a particular type of communication that is limited in its nature, and we're not encountering people. It's very, very, very difficult to encounter a real person on social media. And that's why I think it is a particular challenge, especially for people who spend a lot of time on social media, because people's all they become is some point of view expressed in written words instead of encountering them. Now, maybe after you have a long conversation, you begin to see nuance a little bit more, and then you realize, hey, that's a real person on the other end. And you'll, you, know, you come to your senses. But it's just because of social media, it's very easy to forget that we're actually dealing with, with holy thous and not with mere objects. Okay, so and here's just a little quote to sum up what we've been talking about, and then we can go to this last part here. So you say, When I treat others as a mere object to manipulate for my purposes, and not as ends in and of themselves, a Kantian phrase, then I create cause-effect relationship, which devalues both of us. I guess we can talk about that a little bit, where there's transactional views of people like, oh, I will be friends with this person because they can get me this, or I'll, I don't know, I've I've had relationships like that with people that I felt were my friends only to get something for them, and I know how that feels, and it's, it's not that great, and I'm sure I've done that to people, but I've also felt real relationship where it's not like that, and so is there a distinction between, because like you've said this before, that like, Obviously, in capitalism, we can have a mutual benefit to one another, and a business relationship is based on, you know, a transaction, usually, but, like, we're not dealing with the person directly there, necessarily. We're kind of dealing with what they're offering, and that's understood, but how do you, I don't know, how does that apply when, like, you deal with people in, like, a court of law situation or something? Well, for instance, I'm a trial attorney, 
and I cross-examine people, and my belief is every single time that I'm, I'm giving a real gift to this person because it's the only time that they cannot evade the truth. I'm going to ask questions they have to answer, and I get to follow up and follow up where it will go. And I'm not using the person to make a specific point. I'm allowing them to face the reality of what they've done and, and what they've, you know, where they are. And so I see this as a real gift. They certainly don't see it as a gift. But the reality is that giving a person an opportunity to face the truth about him or herself is a real gift. And so I do my best not to treat them as a mere object lesson to make a point. I want, in the end, for this person to be revealed and for them to have a chance to make a different choice. And they're going to get consequences for what they've done. That's the whole point of the legal system is that there are consequences. And so we have to face the truth about ourselves, which, frankly, I see as a real gift. Back to the commercial world. We've all dealt with people who are there merely to manipulate us. I had a missionary companion that I dearly loved. And after my mission, he contacted me about Amway. It was obvious to me I meant no more to him than, than being somewhere below him on the multi-level marketing scale where he could make money off of me. And so the only reason that he was contacting me had nothing to do with our relationship. It was so that he could get economic gain through Amway. Now, maybe not everybody who does Amway is this way, but at least my encounters have been that way. And it, it was both degrading and offensive to me. I took offense because I expected to be treated with the kind of respect and love that we had when we were missionary companions. It didn't happen. And as a result, it more or less destroyed our relationship. But as you say, I mean, when I order something on Amazon, I'm, I'm indirectly contacting a company and getting what I want. But often, you know, I, I represent school districts as an attorney, and I can tell you very honestly, you know, I begin working with people to answer legal questions and to assist them, and I see myself as a problem solver. I see myself as a person in a system that is so dang complicated that it takes 16 years of education to just get to the point where you're capable of starting to address the education for the problem, another three years to where you can actually get a license to do it, and five years so that you become proficient enough to deal with the complexity of the system to where you can begin to assist people to resolve their problems. Now, they're not my problems, but I'm a professional problem solver. That's how I see my job. But in dealing with them, I come to love them. I mean, I can tell you that some of the people I've loved most in my life were clients for whom I have huge respect, and I see them for what they're doing. Now, I, I do a lot of education law, and I see people dedicated to truly educating others, to being mentors, and to be people who make the world a better place. And I have nothing but respect for those kinds of people. And so, as I've dealt with them, I've dealt with some of the best people I've ever known. And it's been a real blessing for me. But I do make money off of it. But it's come to a point where I'm not doing it merely for the money. I'm also doing it because I love the cause. I love education. I think it's worthwhile, and I love the people who are involved in it. And so I think there's this kind of evolution. And, and I think that a, a Christian never treats another person merely as an object for money. We don't simply manipulate people. And frankly, the laws are set up so that we don't treat people merely as things that we can get money from. We treat them as people who have a value in and of themselves, and we have to recognize that. We have to recognize their value, be truthful with them, and let them make their free choice. In the end, I love this, every transaction, if it's an honest transaction, is a win-win for everybody involved. Because if I'm not offering you a win, you won't do it. And if you're not offering me a win, I don't do it. 
So, you know, the, the very basic engine of, of capitalism, I think, is a very benevolent, wonderful thing because we're both assessing what's in our best interest. I'm honoring your ability to make the choice, and I'm allowing you to make a win in a transaction that we've created together. I think that's a wonderful thing. Okay, and then this last thing here will just set us up probably for the next episode, but say, so let's, you know, we're people, and most of us at some point have entered into the world of things, and we've become a mere thing as a result, a mere effect of all prior causes in the world. How does a person that enters into that world ever escape the overwhelming effect of causal determinism? And you say the relationship with God, for example, has been severed, and how do we heal it? Yeah, and the bigger problem is is that it's kind of like, how do you vote yourself out of a dictatorship once you voted a dictator into office, right? <laughs> Too late. And so you've entered the world of death, but in order to make a choice, you have to be alive to make a choice. But now that you're in the world of death, how do you make a choice that assumes you're alive to make it? You're dead. Because you're living in the world of the past, where no change your life can take place. Remember, all life is change. All life is at the cellular level, the change in processes in the cells. There is no life without change. But the past is fixed. It's unchangeable. It's a given reality. Once having been controlled by our past and being a part of the causal order, the real question is, okay, once we've entered this it world, we've made objects of ourselves, how do we get out of this? And that is for the next time. It's what we focus on in the next meditation. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.